This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and we are here today with Lynn Huffer, the Samuel Candler Dobbs Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Emory University. Uh, we're going to discuss her new book, Foucault's Strange Eros, out in 2020 with Columbia University Press. Hi, Lynn, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, it is absolutely wonderful to talk to you. How are you today? How's Atlanta? It's hot and humid, which is par for the course this time right. of year. So, so Atlanta. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I am so happy to talk to you. As we were just discussing before we started, I'm going on vacation. So I'm wicked stressed and busy. Uh, and I can't imagine how I'll ever get done and get out of here. So needless to say, this talk has been like the shining light of my week that I knew I would get to talk to you. I'm so excited. Um, uh, so. I like I'm I, that's all I'm just very excited but so I, I want to start with getting a beat on your kind of intellectual academic trajectory yeah so you got a PhD a few years ago from the University of Michigan um, in French lit and then your first book another Colette um, looks at the fin de siècle we can call her that right writer Colette's um, through the lens of queer and feminist theory, providing kind of a broader understanding of the category of woman, which is something you take up in your next book as well, Maternal Pasts, Feminist Futures, that like kind of at its, you know, it fundamentally makes us rethink our nostalgic kind of feelings about maternity and motherhood as we, as we try to figure out what it means to be a woman. And both of these call upon the work of Lucy Rigore, Julia Kristeva, you know, some other classic figures, Lacan, Derrida, uh, Jude Butler. Uh, and they wrestle with some of these fundamental questions about the nature of gender, femininity, the notion of woman. I mean, is that fair? Have, is that a fair con? Okay, good. But then with the next work, Mad for Foucault, which for the record is the first time I can remember delighting in a work of feminist theory or of queer theory. Um, I'm, I was also challenged and occasionally frustrated, but I just, I, it just brought me such joy to read it. And I would call my friends and be like, hey, listen to this, um, which, you know, doesn't happen that often <laughs> when you're reading theory. So thank you. Uh, but if Matt for Foucault seems to be the first fruit to blossom from what is going to be a very long and very intimate relationship you have with Michel Foucault, right? Um, and I'm, I'm guessing he's probably one of the most important relationships of your life. He's certainly someone within with whom you have spent a lot of time. Um, but so how how did this start, this thing you have with Michel Foucault? Such a great question. Um, it is definitely one of the most important relationships of my life, although obviously it's a relationship with a ghost. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Which I actually think is appropriate because I see a lot of Foucault's work, if not all of his work, as, I mean, he calls them histories, histoire, which also means story. And and I think in part they're ghost stories, you know, because they're 
He's writing about archives, uh, traces of people who have lived and died. He's also concerned about those who never show up in archives. So I feel like there's something in my relationship to him that mirrors his relationship to the past as well. You know, that, that there are these ghosts mm-hmm. in the world that um, are both with us and not with us. They're present absences. And that's how he is for me. The relationship that I've had with Foucault for many years now started with a graduate course that I taught when I was at Rice University and a colleague who was actually a historian who had used Foucault in his own work as a historian wanted to um, teach a course on using Foucault, like not so much on Foucault himself, but on how different people have used Foucault. And um, and so we, we, you know, worked on that for a while and it turned out that we couldn't teach the course for reasons that are unimportant, but that got me thinking more and more about how important Foucault had been for my own thinking, but that I really needed to delve more deeply into some of the details of Foucault's work. I think it's very easy to take Foucault as a theorist of power, as a theorist of history, you know, the whole sort of genealogy versus history issue, depending on your discipline, right? I think you pick up different aspects of Foucault. If you're a political Mm -hmm. thinker, you pick up on his quote, theory of power. If you're a historian, you're probably more interested in how he thinks about genealogies. And one of the things that I was really interested in is as somebody trained in literary studies and in philosophy, how, how to think about that confluence of literature and philosophy and how to think about Foucault through a sort of literary, rhetorical, aesthetic lens. Um, but I've also been really interested in ethics. And I was interested in how those two things come together. And that just got me started on Mad for Foucault. Um, obviously, you know, the concern in that book was really this this rift between feminist and queer theory. And I was really interested in Foucault as a founding thinker of Anglo-American queer theory and looking at some of the disconnects between what Foucault actually says in his work and how he's been taken up as this founding thinker of queer theories. Um, And that just, you know, got me going and that led to the other two books, um, Are the Lips a Grave? And then the most recent one, Foucault's, Strange Eros, which I now think of as a kind of trilogy on Foucault as this as a thinker of Eros, which for me has become really important um, and I see as a kind of um, muted voice through all of Foucault's work. Um, and I could say more about that, but, it, but but for me, it all goes back to his first major book, which is History of Madness, right, which was first published in 1961. And that was the basis of Mad for Foucault. And that came out of an archival encounter that I had in the Foucault archives. Um, and this, this long interview he did in 1975, where he just kept talking about history of madness. And it became really clear to me how important that book was for him and his own trajectory. I see it as one of those seed books out of which everything else that he wrote sprouted. And I think that that was was missed by a lot of people, and especially in the Anglo-American world, in part because the book was not fully translated until very recently, and you know, until two thousand six. So it was published in nineteen sixty one. There was a partial translation in nineteen sixty five into English, um, but it was really only about two thirds of the original book. So, so there are all kinds of issues at work there that have to do with it not being taken up in the way that I personally think it should have been or could have been, you know, fruitfully. And I, I feel like we miss something if we only go to the first volume of history of sexuality, mm-hmm. right. Which is the one that I think is the most familiar, especially to people who are interested in issues of sexuality. Um, and that was, you know, his book um, that I think received that and discipline and punish are probably the most um mm-hmm well-known books, certainly in the Anglo-American world. So Discipline and Punish, 1975, History of Sexuality, Volume 1, 1976. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, so Mad for, Mad for Foucault is an attempt really to kind of to bring madness into the discourse. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Or his concerns about about madness, um, you know, and its relation to what he calls unreason. So I, I don't want to get too much into the weeds yeah. about that. But I, but I would say, I mean, the main way to think about it's a it's rather than a binary relationship between reason and madness, which is how we often think about it. Foucault thinks of it as a tripartite relationship between reason, madness, and unreason. And I think the best way to understand unreason is that it's this historically contingent backdrop of unintelligibility out of which reason and its objects are extracted. So madness becomes an object of reason. And Mm -hmm. you can see how that happens in the way in which diagnoses happen, right? In the way in which madness gets objectified through various um, nosological categories, right? Um, Whereas unreason remains something that is unintelligible. And it's not not outside of time. It's historically contingent, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but it's it's the it's the background nonsense out of which sense is extracted. I think is the best way to think about unreason. Yeah, that, that that helps. Yeah, there's. Uh, it, yeah, it's noise, right? It's mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. this constant yeah. white noise. Yeah, in fact, yeah. he calls it, and he gets this from Maurice Blanchot, but um, he calls it a murmur, actually. So I think noise is a really appropriate way of thinking about it. Yeah. So what did you leave undone with Mad for Foucault that then led you to do Are the Lips a Grave? Yeah, a couple of things. That's a great question. The first was simply that, you know, I've always thought of myself as a feminist theorist. I've been in women's studies forever. Um, I've always politically thought of myself as a feminist. And I would say that my main um, scholarly connection to, you know, the world of letters has been through the lens of feminist theory. And yet I wrote this book that was mostly about queer theory. And so I wanted to tie that back into questions that had arisen in feminist theory. So that's why I wrote Are the Lips a Grave, which really confronts head on the the rifts between feminist and queer theorists, and particularly around ethical questions, right? So I think a lot of feminist theorists and philosophers have had legitimate concerns about the ethics of sex, for example, and issues of consent and mm-hmm. you know, sexual harassment and things like that. Whereas I think queer theory has tended to lean in the direction of um, let's celebrate our perversions. Let's let a thousand queer flowers bloom. Right. Um, and I think has tended to see ethics talk as potentially dangerous you know it's a kind it represents a kind of um normativity that has done damage right to queer people and in in the form of laws and you know other forms of control Mm -hmm. so there's a there's a genuine rift there that i think demanded some exploration and so that was the purpose of are the lips a grave and i felt like the way foucault thinks about ethics was really useful for that So that was the first thing that I felt was left undone. And then the second thing is related to ethics, which is, you know, one of the things that I used Mad for Foucault to do was was to try to articulate a way of thinking about ethics that felt useful and um, could potentially negotiate or bridge that that rift between feminists and, and and queer theorists and i felt that that demanded more articulation just you know in a philosophical sense like i think there were a lot of philosophers who were not satisfied with the way in which i talked about this ethics of eros that mm-hmm. i found in foucault and so i felt that that needed further explication and i felt that it needed to be concretized more with um with examples with cases from the real world, you know, not just from history of madness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you say that's a success? You did this successfully. Do you think you've healed the rift there or you've done something? 
<laughs> no, but I mean, you there's there's yeah, no. Um but but there's definitely like there there are things in um in I do we shorten it to lips? Is that what we call it? Are there that's fine. I love that. Uh, are there things in? I mean, there are things in in lips. There's a way of reading an ethics um, that that has the potential, right, to be yeah. that that could satisfy two very difficult audiences. I think that's true. And I yeah. And I when I say I didn't heal the rift, I mean obviously, like who could, right? But, right. But what I will say is that. I think there I think I did have some success in articulating the the philosophical foundations of some sort of um you know queer feminism right mm-hmm. which I mean there's a whole body of work that I would put in that category of queer feminism but I think that a lot of it um has not been very philosophically oriented. And so I felt that it was important to do that. And, and especially drawing again on, on Foucault and then bringing the, one of the main things I did in that book was bringing Foucault and Origari together, mm-hmm. right? Which to a lot of people is just like, really? Like, how do you do that? Um, because they seem so very different in so many ways. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, I did see um, a conjunction between them, a way in which they could speak to each other. And again, it was through the lens of Eros. And, you know, Tina, Tina Chanter years ago wrote a whole book on Eros in Arigari. And, um, you know, other feminist philosophers have written, like, there's a wonderful book by Deborah Berghoff on, on Eros and Simone de Beauvoir, right? So there's, there's definitely a tradition within feminism of thinking about sexuality through the lens of Eros, which I think is very different than thinking about sexuality through the lens of the law or, you know, other ways of sort of normalizing Mm -hmm. sexuality. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's something that Foucault is also trying to, to get at as well. So I saw that in both Arigari and Foucault. And to go back to your comment about joy, which makes me so happy that you felt joy when you were reading Mm -hmm. And for Foucault, I think, I think that that um, you know there needs to be a space for thinking about. I don't even want to call it our sexual life because I feel like our sexual life is already so normatively gridded. Even that term, mm-hmm. you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Eros, because eros is this weird word. It's like, what the hell does that even mean? You know, it's this Greek word. It's it's foreign. It's ancient. It's like out of time and out of space, and yet it it articulates something in us that both represents the constant dangers that we face, but also represents possibilities of joy, right? It's both. And I, and I feel like queer feminism needs that thing. Queer feminism needs a huge joy injection in general. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, the feminist killjoy thing it probably hurts them like it feels very close to home that's that's yeah. a fundamental part of being a feminist on some level absolutely absolutely yeah. yes <laughs> speak the truth and we need to name you know what we see when we see it and all of that and you know i i always feel like the feminist killjoy constantly and yet i also want to open up this space that for me is the reason that we do anything at all, you know, and it can't be articulated, but I think joy is as good a word as any for that space. And that, you know, that, that experience, right. It's about an experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and an embodied experience, but also an intellectual experience and emotional experience. Yes. Yeah. Joy's work. Joy works. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, so, but the same kind of question, what did you feel after lips? Uh, what did you feel that you needed to do? You still needed to say that led you to do, um, the mad arrows or strange arrows. Pardon. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. So, um, I just felt that I still needed to articulate what I meant by an ethics of arrows. Um, I still kept getting questions about it. Mm -hmm. 
you know, especially from philosophers, like, well, I still don't quite get what you mean. And some of that is disciplinary. You know, I'm, I, even though I hang out with philosophers and I go to philosophy conferences and I publish in philosophical publications, I'm not a philosopher. I'm just not. (laughs) I'm I'm a literary thinker. I think through the lens of literature, I'm a, I'm a poetic thinker. I mean, for lack of a better term, even though I'm not technically a poet. Um, and that's actually how I see Foucault. And so I really wanted to bring that forward in this most recent book is that if you read Foucault through this lens, that he's a poet and he's a poet of the unsaid, the unseen, the unspoken, um, you know, and I, and I use the metaphor of Sappho, right. And all these sapphic fragments that we find, but, and we can't ever complete them. He's a poet of the incomplete, right. Mm-hmm. And that we, that it's really important to get that about Foucault in order to get what he's up to. Um, and I, that's what the main thing that I'm trying to bring out mm-hmm. book is that poetic dimension of his work. And it's not to deny the other dimensions. It's not to say he's a poet to the exclusion of these other things. But um, I, I do think that reading him as a poet who goes into archives and reconfigures what he finds there through his incredible stylistic talent you know i mean he's an amazing writer just stylistically that's something else that i think people sometimes miss and it re it 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 reshapes how we think about the past and how we think about the present yeah yeah wonderful um yeah he is actually a, a a really intriguing writer he he's he's very uh he's it's actually he can be enjoyable if you will just let yourself enjoy it um but he's also, I mean, he's very complex and he's hes challenging. And I think it doesn't help that the first time most people run across Foucault, it's because they're being forced to. Right. right. And so Absolutely. It, yeah. it's a but, chore instead of. But just an example, you know, that, that some of some listeners might be more familiar with is, you know, there's the, I don't know if you remember, but the opening scene of Discipline and Punish, Sylvie Punil, which came out in French in 1975 you know, which is about disciplinary power and people use it as the basis for a critique of the prison system and so forth. But that first scene is about Damien's who tried to kill Louis the 15th. And, you know, it's he, so he's considered a regicide, even though he was not successful in killing the King. And it's about his torture. I don't know if you remember that, but it's this incredibly brutal, shocking scene. And it, he opens the book with it and you know people always notice that you have this shocking scene and then he talks about how you know we are taught to see what comes after that you know as we move into modernity as a kind of softening of punishment punishment becomes less severe it's a rise in our humanistic sensibilities and so forth and Foucault wants us to question that right he wants us to question that but there are certain things about that opening scene that I think are important to to notice the structure of the scene um every single description of Damien's in that scene is actually reported speech so it's either something somebody said or it's from a newspaper article. So it's thickly archival, right? Mm-hmm. And things like that, I think, are really, really important. So he's building something there. He's building a scene with these archival tools at his disposal. And I think it forces you to ask the question, who is speaking here? Who's witnessing this scene, right? And so it makes us think about ourselves as witnesses of this scene mm-hmm. as as we're reading it, right? Because I think we tend to see ourselves as just neutral observers of trauma and violence. And I think the way he constructs it, and when you start seeing that this is all reported speech, makes us ask the question, where am I in this scene, mm-hmm. right? What's my relationship to it? What's And what's my culpability? What exactly. am I doing, right? Yeah. Because yes. we, are, are, we are part of that power system. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So you, um, I want to just start with, with uh, the Foucault Strange Eros. You open with Ann Carson mm-hmm. um, with this really fun uh a haunting uh, kind of description of translation. And it is, I came to think of translating as a room, not exactly an unknown room, where one gropes for the light switch, prowling the meanings of a word, prowling the history of a person, no use expecting a flood of light. Human words have no main switch, but all those little kidnaps in the dark, and then the luminous, big, shivering, discandied, unrepentant, barking web of them that hangs in your mind when you turn back to the page. You turn back to the page you were trying to translate. And I have done translation. This speaks to me, right? Very, very much. And I'm interested in the decision. What what about this? What about this grabbed your attention? And why did you decide to open with her words? Yes. Um, so there are several reasons for it. I mean, one is um, as I say on the following page, um, you know, Foucault is a page I'm still trying to translate, right? So Mm -hmm. I mean, translation in the broadest sense. So as somebody who has a PhD in French literature, I definitely have a sensitivity to the original language, and some of the nuances of that original language that get lost in translation, right? Mm -hmm. And it's through no fault of the translator. It's just there are certain things in French that are very, just can't be you know, articulated in English and maybe in other languages as well. So that's one thing, but also translating in the broader sense, like I feel like we're, whenever we deal with a thinker or a writer, we're constantly engaged in trans in acts of translation because every moment of reading is, is, is specific, right? It's historically Mm -hmm. contingent. It's geographically contingent. It, It reverberates with the time that we're in right now. And I think for me, that has to do with, what Foucault calls histories of the present. It's like, what is the present that we're in right now? To me, asking that question is an is a is a quest. It's a question about translation, right? Mm-hmm. In the broader sense. Um, and so, I feel like what Anne Carson says about um, this room, you know, not an unknown room where I grope for the light switch, um, and I move I move about in search of something. Wandering here and there, a ship of fools, the errant fragments of an erotic art. Um, prowling Foucault, I prowl Eros. No use expecting a flood of light. So it's it's opening onto Eros as this kind of shadowy, chiaroscuro, light, dark, flickering, something that you get, but then it goes away. Like that's how that's that's Foucault to me. Mm-hmm. We're never going to fully get Foucault. There's the room is never going to be filled with light, you know. And I feel like Anne Carson captured that in that in that passage from this beautiful um, artist book, really, that she made about her brother's death. It's an accordion fold book that's really beautiful, and and the whole book is actually a translation of Catullus, who wrote an elegy for his brother when he died. So. So she goes through each word of this elegy by Catullus, and then she gives all the different translations of each word um, from the Latin into English. Like, it's amazing. Wow, um, yeah. Like, she starts with multa. I, I can't even remember it now in Latin. But um, so, so that whole book is about also the relationship between translation, grief, right, this elegy or death of someone, and... And then how to capture that, even though it's never going to be fully captured. And and then the other thing about Anne Carson is her book, her her first book, Eros the Bittersweet, um, which to me still remains one of the most useful and just beautiful reflections on Eros that I know. And that book has influenced me so much in my reading of Foucault, and in particular reading Foucault's Eros, not through the lens of Plato. I mean, Plato has a lot to say about Eros, right? But Plato is like the father of modern, of Western philosophy, you know? And I'm really interested in looking beneath that to this other sort of poetic 
genealogy that goes back to Sappho. And it's not to romanticize Sappho or anything like that, but I just think there's this poetic, there's this poetic dimension of Eros that gets lost when we just take up how philosophy has talked about it. And, you know, philosophy has a tendency to want to systematize, to want to flood the room with light. <laughs> right. That's, that, that's what it's about. Right. That's, yeah, they're it's weird. That- they're weird people. Truth, right? And and I am trying to put Foucault in this other context where it's like the room is never going to be flooded with light, but that doesn't mean that it's less valuable. Mm-hmm. There's actually something in that half light that we need to exp- again, that we need to experience, right? Right. Well, and the chiaroscuro you get there, there's a depth and a contour that's essential. And you know, and 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 the, the I mean, that's how t- translation is always an interpretation, and it's always a failure. Uh, even the most successful of translation is still you're still leaving something behind on the other page that just isn't going to make it. And that I mean, that's the, but that's the human existence, right? That's that's why that's what we do as people, right? We always get this. But um, you know the the opening your your opening when you are actually writing is you which you just read right, um, it's just gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. And I think if we can crack that, we have this book. Right? Like if if you if you can read and understand your first paragraph and really like have it, then it's good. Um, you know, uh, and and a part of it is is defining what translating means. And I think we've kind of gotten to that pretty well, right? That it's. It's about moving, moving something from one realm to another, right? Like, um, yeah. Um, but then there's also the question of what is eros, and I don't know that I understand eros. Do you know? I, but can you can you explain? I mean, for for me and for our listeners as well, but also for me, I, what what is eros? You know, I I, I think of it as. Um, in the historical, I'm a Renaissance historian, and Eros is the dangerous kind of sexual. It's sexuality. It's Eros as opposed to Amiketia, and that's how I tend to think of it as as something that's terrifying and disrupting and breaks through boundaries. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I I think the first thing I would say is I think Eros is um, intentionally left as a word that's going to be that half dark room. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But I'm not saying that to get out of your question. I think what's, to me, what's interesting about Eros is that it's been taken up in so many different ways at so many different times in history. I mean, you have, you have Eros in, um, you know, most famously in Plato in the Phaedrus, right? Where you have the, this chariot with these, horses and you're trying to control these horses right and eros is this this part of the soul that is unruly and that wants to grow these wings and it's it's desire right it's desire with all of its dangers and i think that gets taken up in you know like in the renaissance when you have a return to the greeks um you have eros as the root of the word erotic right and and in the history of feminism you have things like you know well let's try to distinguish between pornography the the pornographic and the erotic right and we and there's a clear and distinct difference and we just know it when we see it right Mm -hmm. and so it gets turned this this strange noun that we don't really understand gets turned into this adjective that somehow holds all of this weight in terms of our desire to get some clarity that again has to do with the ethics of sex right it goes back to the ethics of sex and I think Foucault himself, you know, had some views about sexuality that I think a lot of people would find really problematic. Um, and or he it certainly raised questions about things that I think people would find problematic. And and so, I, I you know, part of it is, I think, the ambiguity of the noun Eros that also was taken up by Freud in the 20th century as a word in opposition to Thanatos, right? So life, Eros is life, you know, this life force, right? This biological force, this instinct um, that then got taken up by people like Marcuse. Um, 
as this thing to be celebrated. So it becomes this force of liberation, which has its own issues, right? Mm-hmm. It has to do with Foucault's critique of the repressive hypothesis that somehow our sexuality is just this life force that has been repressed and we just need to free it. It's not that either, right? So, so Eros to me is just this word that has all these different lenses on it and in it of itself, it, it doesn't necessarily mean anything at all. Um, it's, and yet it has all these different connotations that get at some of the most um, compelling issues of our time, especially as they relate to how we think about what we call sexuality. And, and for me, the eros that we find in Sappho gets at that more than anything because she's a poet. And so, you know, she'll say Eros is this, is this wind that comes down from the mountains and shakes the oaks or something like that, you know? And it's, it's this description of something that's, it is a force, but it's not a force that's, that's outside of time and space. It's always specific to its time and its space. And, um, it's, it's the thing that compels us to persist in our projects, in our efforts, in our desire to connect with other people, right? Mm-hmm. Eros is also social for, you know, for Sappho mm-hmm. as it is for Foucault, I think. You know, it's, a, it's, it's not just this individual desire that bursts out and expresses itself as some sort of individual um, libido or something like that. It's actually also a force of connection, but because of the danger that you mentioned, that same force of connection can also be a, a force of repulsion or exclusion or even harm. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's all of that. And, and I feel like an ethics of arrows is something that takes all of that into account. It's not systematizable for sure. Right. Okay. Yeah, because I mean, that's the next question is what's an ethics of Eros? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so an ethics of Eros to me is, I mean, to put it most simply, it's um, it's it's an attitude that can be cultivated, right? That always takes into account the the suffering of the world, the dangers of the world, the ways in which our intent, our best intentions can be, you know, turned in directions that we never would have imagined how, how we can love somebody and, and hurt them at the same time Mm -hmm. and to cultivate an attitude that is able to hold that right. And, and act from there. So, I mean, so for me, it's very much related to um, the ethics for me is related to a kind of, um, you know, like, meditative practice, you know, a practice of, um, I mean, what Foucault would call technologies of self, where you're actually trying to um, allow yourself to be transformed through certain practices. So for me, a practice of an ethics of Eros would be a practice of, um, cultivating a relation to self that becomes more open to the complexities of what I just described. Mm -hmm. So it's the cultivation of an attitude. That is fundamentally, is it fundamentally celebratory? Is it? No, it's not necessarily. I mean, I think it's, um, it's open to the possibilities of joy or celebration, but it's also attuned it's attuned to the suffering and loss Mm -hmm. of the world you know Mm -hmm. it's attuned to that um and it it doesn't hold one or the other as its primary focus or perspective it it holds it it holds it all and and to me that that word arrows captures that Mm -hmm. you know it's, it feels like that's it's something that can be placed in direct opposition to uh, the technologies of power, to right, to um, moralizing, mm. perhaps. Right? 
Yeah. It's, so it's definitely not moralistic in that usual yeah. sense, right? That, I mean, one of the things Foucault said, and I actually don't believe him, but he said, I never tell other people what to do. <laughs> mm, okay. Okay. Like, really, dude, come on, be honest. But, you know, he might have said it as a kind of provocation, but I do think there is something <laughs> in his ethics that is very um, suspicious of telling other people what to do, right? The mm-hmm. kind of moralism that I think, again, is behind some of the rifts we see between feminists and, and queer theorists, right? Um, because I think feminism can be guilty of a certain kind of moralism, a kind of finger wagging, you know? Sure. Um, and that that has been be- viewed by the queer community forever as destructive, and, exactly. and, you know, well into violence. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, and it becomes part of like what Janet Halley calls, you know, governance feminism. And I mean, you know, that's a whole other thing, but I, but I do think that some of these critiques of feminism that have come from people who used to identify much more strongly with feminism, like Janet Halley are, have to do with that kind of moralistic strand that we find mm-hmm. in, in feminism in general. And I think that's something that we need to own as feminists. And um, again, it goes back to, you know, what I described, like, where are we in that scene of Damien's being tortured? And when I'm, when I'm sitting there wagging my finger at somebody and telling them what they should do, where am I in that picture? Like, am I above it all? You know? And if I'm not above it all, if I'm in there, like, what does that, mean about th- my ethical relation to those others right and i think so so it's it it's not look this this ethics that i'm describing is not going to mm-hmm. be satisfying to somebody who's in policy you know like m- like my spouse is a political scientist and she's like how do you operationalize this <laughs> uh, that, it, you can't and that's not its purpose <laughs> yeah that is not my problem <laughs> If that's not useful to you, then you go do your thing and I'll do mine, right? I think there's the world is full of people who do all kinds of different things, you know. And Foucault is not a policymaker; he just no. and so that that's not its purpose. Mm-hmm. But I do think if if it if it achieves the goal of expanding how we think about things that are really complex and that leave us feeling stuck, like I don't know what to do. And if it, if it allows our brains and our thoughts and our feelings to shift in some way, that to me is a, a great achievement, you know? Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because you say that, right, there's this question, the biggest question of the book when we like pull back is how am I to live with others as an embodied aging inhabitant of a wondrous and devastated planet? And this this ethics of experiencing, of, of, of embracing, perhaps, it may be in embracing the unembraceable in some ways. Yes. It's- yes. And that, and that sentence that you just read, um, you know, points to the condition in which we find ourselves today, right? With the, with a pandemic, this wondrous and devastated planet. I mean, isn't that where we are right now with all the, you know, the, the IPCC Ugh. report that just came out about, you know, the worse climate change is happening faster than even the most pessimistic people had imagined. And like, we do live on a wondrous and devastated planet. That's not an exaggeration. No, and sadly. Foucault helps us to think about that, you know, mm. and my current work is actually about how Foucault can help us to think about climate change and um, the pos- you know, the, ex- the mass extinction of species and all that we're facing. I think he is actually really helpful in thinking about those things, precisely because there is no clear, like, policy answer to any of these questions, right? And a lot of it is about the cultivation of new ways of being. Yeah, and. Um- New ways of being in a fairly difficult world, um, you know, in a world that's terrifying, that is, with a future that's quite terrifying. Um, and perhaps poetics, like perhaps a poet is the only thing that can, like, well, get us through that then. So that's the current work you're working on. It's what did I, I read it 
on Anthropocene. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Tell me about that. Yeah. I've been working on that for um, several years now. And um, I guess one of the most concrete Foucault related things that has come out of that is an essay called, um, called Foucault's fossils. And I go back to what he writes about, about monsters and fossils in the order of things. It's just this short little section in his, 1966 book, Les Moyles shows the order of things. Um, but he, you know, Foucault was obsessed with, I mean, he, he was very interested in Darwin, but he was even more interested in Cuvier, who's sort of the father of paleontology. So, you know, I think Cuvier, for Foucault, Cuvier made Darwin possible. And he does that interesting thing where like, like um, he, you know, he often does this, but in, he displaces Darwin with Cuvier. So, you know, in the hist- in our history, in our standard histories, Darwin is the important one. But for Foucault, it's Cuvier. And Cuvier, you know, spent his life, um, I mean, he was both, you know, in, in, in anatomy, but also in paleontology. And he was the one who started seeing how the world was much older than we thought it was. And he also was the one who who developed this theory of catastrophism where there were these great events that wiped out large numbers of species. And, you know, catastrophism is something that has come and gone in the history of paleontology. But I think that the way Foucault thinks about history and the past and time and these, this idea of epistemic breaks that he has, right. Where there's a certain period and then there's like a break that goes all the way down. And you can't see on the other side of that break. And I think that if we take that seriously and look at the history of the planet through that lens, it helps us to come to grips with what we're facing right now, you know, as a species. And also Foucault opens up in History of Sexuality, Volume 1, the whole idea of species thinking and and what that implies in terms of the fate of, of humanity. And I think... There's, there's more to be pursued there. But one of the things I'm doing in my more recent work is I'm actually using Foucault's thinking about Cuvier and geological time and fossils and, you know, traces that remain and, you know, then most of life comes and goes without leaving a trace. I'm using all of that in conjunction with my thinking about Foucault as a poet. And I'm actually... Um, creating I guess they're essays but they're very experimental and they're fragments actually and putting together these fragments that are about how do we think about self which for Foucault I think is an illusion just as it is in Buddhism right but how do we think about self this thing that we're so attached to in relation to the planetary devastation that we find ourselves in and I, and I think answering that question is really important if we're to find some way of being in what, in what confronts us. I think we have to get out of this hubristic notion of, of self, of, of man, anthropos, being in charge. Wow, that's a lot to live with in your office. Yeah. <laughs> It is. It is. It's definitely a lot. And I mean, for me, here I just like, it sort of rolled off my tongue because I've been thinking about it. But I have to go in and out of it because it's it's really intense, you know, reading about mass species extinction all the time. And, um, but I also, you know, I'm one of those people, and this is just my own delusion. um, I'm sure part of what drives the work that I do is that is the delusion that if I can write about it and think about it and talk about it, then somehow I'll be able to control it. <laughs> sure. You might give us the answer, right? <laughs> that we could, we could fix this, exactly. this, this extinction event that's happening in yeah. front of our very eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sure. I'll go with that. Um, and, but I, I, I like that. Um, I think it's wonderful that you're going to continue to think about the the lacuna mm. that the absences help to create 
uh, something so concrete as how to deal with extinction. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. And Foucault, yeah, as I said, Foucault was really interested in extinction. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that his later work, starting with History of Sexuality, Volume 1, where he moves from this idea of disciplinary power, which is an individualizing power, to regulatory power, which is the other pole of of biopower that is more about masses. You know, it's about massification. It's about the management of life. It's about populations. I think all of that is related to this idea of extinction on a large scale, right? And it doesn't mean that the individual deaths don't matter. It's just that what's at stake is is actually populations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing I should say about that is it's really easy to see Foucault, like, like if we think historically, we're, you know, we're used to thinking in a linear way. We're used to thinking that you have beginning, middle, you know, and then it ends in us in the present. You know, we look back at the past like a line. Right. And that's not the only way to think about time. And that's where I think Foucault's um, Nietzscheanism comes in, where, you know, the idea of an eternal recurrence and that there's also a recursive dimension to time where things return. Mm-hmm. The difference. And certainly there have been mass genocides of entire populations in the past that return in different ways. We're, you know, we're not in, we're not under sovereign power anymore. And yet these weird, like returns of things that look like sovereignty happen, you know? Um, so, so there's this recursivity, even though we, at the same time, we have this epistemic, these epistemic breaks and those two ways of thinking about time coexist. Right. And it's not to say that time is anything. It's not a metaphysics. It's just, you know, time is a human invention. And the human invention of time has both of these dimensions, both the linear and the recursive. Right. Well, and and how we experience them, because time is is how we experience what what is happening. Exactly. Yes. We can do both of these things. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating. Wow. Well, you know, it it turned out that um, I, you know, uh, uh, listeners, before we started the interview, I said I have no idea how this is going to go. I don't know what we're gonna, I don't know how we're going to talk. I don't know what we're going to talk about. I have no idea where this is going to go. And as it turned out, it, um, it it was more of kind of a retrospective on your relationship here, um, and and your work and kind of as a whole, rather than getting into any of the specifics of the book. But I'm really happy with that. Actually, I think that's great. Um, and there's no way we were going to get, have any kind of conversation that was going to mean that, you know, a listener wasn't going to have to read the book. So there's, <laughs> this, this still happens. You, you've got to go, you're going to go and you're going to enjoy it because it's really beautifully written. Um, and it's, it's, it's also, it's just, it is an enjoyable and it's wonderful to think about. And you'll find yourself staring into the middle distance, thinking about Eros while you're reading. So enjoy that. And um, so tell me, uh, the new project, is that going to be, are you going to do that as a book or a series of essays that you'll release independently? What, what do you envision there? Yeah, so um, it's it's definitely going to be a book. And um, right now I'm imagining it as, um, as 99 fragments, although mm. that may change. And I got that from the, um, from, there's a French writer who wrote a book called Exercises in Style, Exercice de Style, Raymond Cunot. And he's one of the founders of this French group called Ulipo, which is all about writing through constraint. Um, and Exercice de Style, in Exercice de Style, Cunot just describes the scene of a guy on a bus. And he rewrites it 99 times in 99 different ways. And I, and I, and what I'm really picking up on there is just this idea of the generativity of constraint, which I think is one of the basic, um, you know, principles behind poetry in general, right? Is that, is that there's creativity in constraint, whether it's, you know, the length of a line or where the line break is or rhyme or whatever it might be. And with Ulipo, you know, there were some pretty radical, interesting, quirky constraints. My favorite is Georges Perec. 
um, who was an amazing um, novelist and also a member of Ulipo. One of his most famous novels is called um, La Disparition. Um, I can't remember how it's translated. I think it's translated as void maybe, but it, it's really like more like disappearance. Um, and it's about his mother was deported to out to Auschwitz and she died in Auschwitz and it's, and yet there's no trace of that disappearance. So um, the whole novel is written without an E. There's no E in the entire novel and it's a big novel and E is the most common letter in the French language yeah, and so and so it's it's one of those things where you can read the novel and not even notice that there's no ease, but then you realize that there's no ease, and it's uh, which also is e u x in French, which means them, and so it's the disappearance of uh, right, which is also this um, you know kind of allusion to those who were deported, mm-hmm. you know, during the occupation in France. And that's part of his own personal story. So that's just like an example of how constraint also, it's it's not just a parlor game. It also has these deeper philosophical, historical, ethical valences to it. And so, so part of what I'm trying to do with fragments is to use the constraint of fragment to convey the the loss and the absence and the uncertainty of of the time that we're in with regard to the fate of our planet Mm -hmm. basically Mm -hmm. i don't know if that makes sense it's hard to describe in a nutshell um and i'm still i'm still working on it it's very much an experiment um and so it's, I, I don't know what the final thing is going to look like. Um, I do have an essay in Arizona quarterly where um, I, somebody asked me to write an essay about auto theory, um, Robin Wigman, because she sees what I do as, as, as what some people call auto theory. Um, and so I did write an essay that's kind of getting at some of that, although it's, it's changed since then. Um, but so there's that publication. And then, I have another um, essay that's coming out in an, a volume on a rigor eye that's about the most experimental thing that I've done. And it's, um, it's in, it's in columns. It's very fragmented. It has visuals. Hmm. I've been making visuals. My, like I've been making a lot of um, in, in particular collages. And so part of what I'm starting to develop is, is, is using collage as a way to inform our thinking, because I, I think there's something very collage-like about our experience of the present, and so I'm using that as a way to um, capture something, but also to create a relationship with the reader. Mm-hmm. Where the reader feels impelled, maybe to do their own creative thinking around things mm-hmm. as well, so that it isn't. Yeah just doom and gloom like and that's why i think the generativity of constraint is important because we are extremely constrained right now like i think a lot of us feel completely helpless right the forces that confront us are so much bigger than we are i mean talk about constraint right mm-hmm. and yet yeah. constraint there's still the possibility for invention for creativity for generating yeah. something new for transforming our relationship to ourselves and to others and we can't know what that's going to look like. We can't no. project it into the future. We can only inhabit it as we're doing it, right? Yeah, as we prowl. You know, as we prowl about. It's prowling. That's what it is. That's exactly right. It's prowling. Um, wow. There's not going to be a flood of light. And it's going to be, I mean, the collage, it's interesting. I just thought of this. It is kind of like that chiaroscuro um, aesthetic, mm-hmm. you know? where you see certain things and other things are more blurred and, you know, depending on how you look at it, certain things come out and certain things go fade into the background and it's bringing together different things from different times and different contexts um, and transforming them into new shapes. And, you know, there, I, I've been very influenced by the artwork of, of Hannah Hook. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She was a Dada artist and she made these amazing, um, photo montage and collage works 
that uh, also are very political. I mean, this was during the rise of fascism. So, and it's not to say that collage is always anti-fascist. It's not, but I think there's something about collage that takes what's happening in the world and, and, and reworks it. Mm -hmm. That that can be really um, empowering, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It allows for a juxtaposition that will really betray any kind of attempt to put order from from away. Yes. Yes. And juxtaposition is exactly the word. There's something in new juxtapositions that I think can be very generative, but that's a different kind of thinking than systematizing something, right? Mm -hmm. There's something chance-based in the juxtaposition. So it's chance, but there's also, it's not pure chance, right? But chance is definitely an important element in in the juxtaposition. Yeah, the unexpected as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Wonderful. What a great conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, This is great. I'm so glad that you uh, decided to join me today. Yeah, well, let's uh, talk again. I'm very excited about seeing what happens with you and what you're going to do next. It's going to be very cool. I'm sure of that. Thank you, Yana. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Lynn. Bye-bye. Bye.